Hello, welcome to the Norwegian Newcomers podcast in which we hear about fragments from the lives of Norwegian Newcomers. Today, my guest is Ellen. Ellen, welcome to my living room studio. For a start, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, so my name is Ellen. Uh, my pronouns are she, they, and I'm from Utah in the U.S. I was originally born in Texas to some Mormon military parents. So I grew up uh, as a Mormon. My Both my parents were in the Army. Uh, ultimately, both my brothers would be also in the Army and Marine Corps. The only reason I'm not in the military is because when I was uh, 13 to about 16, I got cancer. I had cancer in my left eye, and um, that basically for about three years, I was going to and from Boise, Idaho to Portland, Oregon for treatments and things like that. So ultimately, I lost my left eye, so I actually live with a prosthetic now. Right after I was diagnosed cancer-free, we moved to Utah, so I went to high school there and college. I went to uh, film studies at the local community college with a scholarship. That was my one big kind of break. So I went down to this uh, very Mormon town called Provo, and I went to a college there. I started being surrounded by these people that it was just a meat market. Like it was a way to meet uh, Mormon missionaries that were coming back to Utah. They are ready to get married and like, it was just totally bizarre that my whole identity was to get married at 18 and I was not into it at all. So after one year, I moved back up to Salt Lake City, which is kind of the liberal Democrat part of Utah. And then after that, I went to uh, the University of Utah. That's where I transferred all my credits and got my uh, bachelor's in gender studies. I did minors in psychology and history. That first year of getting a gender studies degree, I would go home crying because it was just the feminism uh, really just opened my eyes to what was going on in the world around me. It explained so much about how I felt as a young girl and young woman and person with an opinion. It just really blew my mind. I never realized that I was actually part of the problem. So I think that was a really tough, amazing year to have that education and kind of like get down to what is gender studies and gender and feminism and what does that mean. All the while, I was working at ski resorts. I wish I could explain how much these years kind of meant for me, because I was traveling, I was meeting people. There's a ton of transplants in the ski industry. You know, my first years as a ski lifty, there was like at least 100 of us that were all lifties, and like three of us were actually from there. So I very quickly found this love of people not from where I was and just exchanging ideas and meeting new people. So I did a lot of traveling, which I think I inherited that from both my parents. And both my parents, although I was raised Mormon, they actually converted to Mormonism later in life themselves. Eventually I would get a job at like the favorite place, place that had been around for 15 years. And that ended up being a place that really provided a lot of community and welcoming and belonging. And that was called Alchemy Coffee and it's still around. And that actually afforded me a little bit of financial financial freedom for probably the first time in my life where I was actually able to afford to even buy a plane ticket to come out to Europe. You know, I always had this like fantasy that I was going to go to Europe. I think I thought in my mind it was going to be France, but I was going to be biking down a cobblestone street with a bike that had a basket and a baguette. None of us knows in advance which path we will take in life. 
we may or may not be influenced by our parents and the society in which we live. Our personality, I believe, as well as circumstances and coincidences determine our lives. Listen below to the circumstances that led Ellen to Norway. Ultimately, what led me to Norway was a really tough breakup. I had some wine with my roommate at the time and I found a cheap direct flight to Oslo in the middle of February, February 2018. I came to Norway and I made friends at the International Music Festival Bilarm. I volunteered there last minute and made a lot of friends. Bilarm, it's an international music festival. It's all over Oslo. So there was uh, concerts at John D, Vulcan Arena. But so the f very first time was yeah. you in, in Oslo, being in Oslo yeah. because of the festival? Well, and not even because of the festival. I was just couch surfing. And one of these people, I still consider him a friend. His name is Andre. He reached out and was like, hey, you're Couchsurfing profile says you're into music. Come volunteer with us. We need more volunteers. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of jet lagged. He's like, there's free beer tonight. I was like, all right, I'm there. And so I showed up and drank a bunch of beer with these people. And they're like, okay, we need you to work one shift. And for that one shift, you will get a whole week pass. What kind of knowledge uh, or information you you had before landing? I had like no information about. <laughs> I even got on a Norwegian air flight, thinking like, wow, this is going to be a Scandinavian airplane. So kind of you know the reputation of like Norwegian. Norwegian air and so I got on there asking for water and they're like you need to buy water you need to pay for water and I was like no water is a human right like you can't make me buy water that's insane so then I got to Norway and I was kind of telling this funny one of my first cultural differences of like where's my water um to some people at the festival and they were just laughing and they were like everyone knows about Norwegian air and I was like yeah but I thought it was gonna be like this Nordic hospitality or something, and I was just completely Free water for the But I think like the things start. that I had looked up was like Munch Museum and the Opera House, and I kind of knew that I wanted to go see these things and go to these places. But typically when I'm traveling, I like to just find local pubs and craft beer and good coffee. And with that, I tend to just ask either the bartender or barista or um, other people that are around me like, hey, what's fun to do around here? What's cool? Yeah. And the cool thing about Bilarm was I ended up meeting, um, I know maybe not by looking at me, you wouldn't guess, but I'm pretty into like metal music and heavy metal. So I go and I, I realize there's Bilarm Black, which is like the metal scene. And so I go and I made all these friends there and had these experiences and they were all recommending places and go to No Blood Records and go to the basement. And so I did that. And so there were a lot of really good recommendations. I think this was how I found Scousplass Brewery. The bartender there, um, he and I are still Facebook friends because he was just so awesome. And so the next time I came back out to Oslo, I made sure to go in there and like, hey, I'm back. He's like, it's you. And, and just to have those connections where halfway across the world, someone remembers you. Can a bad breakup still bring something good and take us to some new experiences, meeting new people and traveling new countries? Ellen's case shows it can. The guy sure. whose house I stayed at couch surfing, he actually ended up being out of town the whole time I was here. So for me, I was like, score. I have a free apartment for five days alone. Awesome. And I don't have to deal with like, is he going to be weird or whatever? So that was great. The last night I was here, I met him and he was so cute. <laughs> and so I was like, oh man, why haven't you been here all week? <laughs> so then we sit there and it's like, kind of flirtatious, but also like I had a separate room and nothing untoward happened. But a month later, he messages me, hey, I'm in Vegas. And Salt Lake City is about five, six hours from Vegas. 
I was sitting there with my barista coworkers, and I'm like, dude, Norway Hottie is texting me. He's in Vegas, I have to go. So I go down to Vegas, meet up with Norway Hottie for I think a day and a night. He flies back to Norway, and I think a few months later we kind of agreed that I was gonna come back out to Norway. I think that was May, so the weather was a lot better, and we just did all the like, you know, he took me to uh, my first ever nude beach out on one of the Oslo islands, yeah, whatever you yeah, call yeah. that. So that was pretty funny, because I think it was also maybe like a gay cruising spot. And you know, typically I'll look up like queer Oslo or like gay bars, and that's the scene that I wanna like be in. So then to even find this like gay cruising spot, I was like, this is amazing. And especially as an American from Republican Mormon Utah, like, nude beach was totally yeah, yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah. He was just like a very good host, very good guest, uh, fun time. And then he actually came out and saw me in Utah, and we, you know, it was one of those like kind of talking every day. I met a couple of his friends while we were in Vegas. Hovard, he is wonderful. We're still really good friends. And he was just basically like, you need to go to gender studies. You need to get your master's here in Norway. We have a program you need to apply. He actually wrote me while I was applying for my visa. Um, and while I was applying for school, I had to have letters from people. Like I had to have a letter from a Norwegian that was like, I vouch for this person. So he was my person that did that. He yeah, was one of the many people that donated money so that I would have enough money in a Norwegian bank account to get my visa. He's very influential for why I even applied. When you decide to continue your studies abroad, the first step is administratively difficult, but inevitable if your country is not an EU member. Applying for a visa is the number one step. I applied in August 2018, I think, and then I was accepted April 2019, and I came out here August 2019. So it was quite a quick, but also long. Yeah, and it was surprised the first time when I expected answer from anything, sending any institutions. Yeah. The first time I was surprised that I was uh, waiting too long. Yeah. But now I kind of, I'm expecting. Yeah, they even said, I think, uh, it's longer for international students. So I think they kind of give preference for locals. And then if they need to fill more students in their program, they'll, okay, let's have some internationals. And gender studies is such a small program. We only had, I think, 13 to 15 even start out. And then in the end, only about three or four of us actually finished or finished on time. Yeah, I ultimately had to, like, borrow money, I went to San Francisco, did my visa interview, and just all of it was kind of like, by a thread. The first three months of living abroad are damn hard. Everything is new, unknown, and complicated. It requires a tons of positive energy, constant focus, and patience. So, I mean, those first three months were really difficult because I had moved here with Norway, and I didn't move in with Norway Hottie or anything like that, but we, he had loaned me this money and he had offered to let me stay, and as soon as I landed, it was so clear that he had met somebody else but didn't know how to tell me. I like to think I'm pretty open and you can talk to me about anything. And that just never really happened. So I think within a few weeks, I was like, this is too awkward. I'm gonna spend all my money in an Airbnb. So I actually lived in an Airbnb most of my uh, first semester here. He didn't even tell me sorry I met anybody. He. I think he thought I was only going to be there for a week or two and he would get away with not saying anything to me. And so I got an Airbnb and the, the guy I ended up renting a room from was awesome, super helpful, wonderful guy. But yeah, it was really tough to be in my 30s. I'm a working adult. I've been working since I you know, was mowing lawns and babysitting. To come here and uh, have such a hard time getting a phone number. My P number was messed up for 10 months. 
I couldn't get a bank account, I couldn't have bank ID, and no one wanted to rent to someone like me, basically. And they told me that to my face or in emails. Sorry, you're not from an EU country. Like, this isn't gonna work. How efficient are the institutions in Norway in solving all the administrative problems facing every newcomer? Could it be better? Do you know how frustrating all this can be? I think it's two things. I think it's the, yeah, like the bureaucratic administrative systems where banks could make it easier, but they have no desire to or push to. So they just kind of keep it as is. Norwegians think this system works. This system is amazing. I love my bank ID. I love my personal number. Why would we change it? It's safe. It keeps me safe and it must work for everyone. And I think that's the problem when you're talking about privilege in any culture or society or country. It's easy for me. It must be easy for you. I feel like I represent the person that it's like, I'm the one person it doesn't work for. And I hear it often from Norwegians, but I don't hear it often from other expats, immigrants, refugees. When you are a newcomer, any help means a lot. Some people will be happy to help you and some will show their arrogance. But you certainly don't expect arrogance where you are promised help. At the university, for example. I think this was also around the same time where I was going to my school advisor because that's what I would do back home. And it was jarring because he, I was telling her I was promised housing, I was promised healthcare, and the, neither of these things are coming true. And then the same with the Career Center. Like I go into the Career Center and they're like, oh, no one's gonna hire you. You've never been hired by a Norwegian company before. And I'm sitting there like, I've been a barista and a server and a bartender for a decade. None of my skill sets or my my work ethic or my desire or my strive, like none of it seemed to really matter. So this was kind of my first experience in Norway of having like a change in my confidence and my personality and my self-esteem because I really just did not belong and it was actually verbally being told to me like this isn't built for you this isn't for you and so that's when I actually got a job um, at a student pub about like six hours a week at 90 kroner an hour 10 US dollars an hour not too bad not too bad I go on a date with Peter my now boyfriend and he's like no that's not good that's illegal that's illegal so I, I really struggled for that first three months. I didn't have the personal number yet, so I didn't have healthcare. At the beginning of this episode, Ellen mentioned that at the age of 13, she got cancer in her left eye. After three years of treatment, she lost her left eye and has had an eye prosthesis ever since. But now she will tell us about her experience in Oslo in trying to cure an infection in her healthy eye. I got this thing called scleritis, which I think is like I had a small infection or a small cut on my eye. And one day, I think I went to class that morning, I studied all afternoon, and I hurts, my eye hurts. I must have been studying too hard with my one eye on my computer. So I took a nap. I woke up and my whole, the white part of my eye was red and it was swollen. Like I was very scared. I wake up the next day, I can barely see. I call around, I call the ER. They say, yeah, come in. And I'm like, okay, how do I get there? And they're like, uh, public transportation, take a tram, take a bus. And I'm sitting there like, I can't see. Can't see I actually can't see. They said, it's not an emergency. I was like, okay, well, what about a taxi? And they were like, oh, well, if you get a taxi, we'll reimburse you. And I think at this point I had been here two months and I was like, yeah, you're gonna reimburse me for a taxi, like no way. So I hop on the tram. I get there, I keep trying to tell them I have one eye and I can't see. They basically tell me like, you don't have any scratches, you don't have this. They printed out three pages double space of people to call. 
So I call around, I call around, I speak English, I've only been here two months, I don't have a personal number to give them, so I, most of them just hung up on me. Someone had to tell the ER to recommend me, to refer me. He's like, there's always a referral. I'm yeah. Like, okay, who referred me? I figured out that the eye specialist at Ulaval referred me. I called them, they hung up on me the first couple of times, like so kept calling, and I was crying at this point. Please help me. They transferred me to someone who spoke English, and she was wonderful. And she's like, the doctor owes me a favor. Come on down. We'll help you out. This is my third day now at this point, not being able to see. My eye is painful. They prescribed me some eye drops. They saw me. I was, I was better within 30 hours. My eye was fine. Like, all I needed was some steroid eye drops. At, at the end of the day, when I finally got my personal number seven months later, I complained to Scott Tatsun that, hey, I paid thousands of kroner out of pocket for these appointments that I should have been um, part of the system for. School told me to go to Scott Tatsun. Scott Tatsun told me to go to Helfo. Helfo told me to go yeah, to Scott Tatsun. So yeah. I just, I just kind of paid for that. When I talk about this experience sometimes with Norwegians, it's like, it's totally just treated as like, oh, it's just a one-time thing. And I'm just sitting there like, if this happens to someone who's like a white Western American with the name Ellen. Who else is this happening to? Who else are, you know, secretaries or doctors or nurses just rolling their eyes at? State institutions may be slow, but they are fair. With the delay of almost two years, Ellen received an interesting message from NAV. So COVID came to town, I was permittered. So I figured out what NAV was. I figured out what permittering was. I called Scott to talk to him every day for the day uh, for in March. And I finally got my personal number. So I was able to even apply for these things. So I wasn't really expecting like welfare or handout. Like I was kind of like, I have two months until my savings runs out and I'm going to go home. And, and even that was like really funny because they way down south messed up the paperwork. So I actually got paid too much. And this is literally early 2020, right? Last month, Nav reached out and said, hey, we overpaid you. And dude, you guys are lucky I'm still here. I graduated a year ago. I could have moved home like you all wanted me to. But those two things helped me survive those two months. I asked Ellen if she still has confidence in the system in Norway after a couple of pretty bad experiences that may prove that there is still room for improvement. Do you have a trust in, in health system? I don't think so. And uh, in a student? Uh... Oh, not at all. Not at all. The SEO services, I mean, in the end, I kind of like was able to figure out things and get what I needed. But I think that's actually what I'm currently working on is how do I leave what happened in the past and like move forward with the knowledge I have now? And I have all the things they want me to have. I have my ID and my paperwork and everything's in order. How do I move forward now instead of kind of staying stuck in that? It would be nice if uh, someone sometime maybe <laughs> to think about that and to see what is the problem. And I think most of us came here with a really big prejudice like, oh no, Norway, it's everything functioning. And I know, and that's a thing for Norwegians as well, which is a little bit comforting, but also for me, like there's a way, you know, I'll sit with my American friends over a coffee or a beer and we will maybe not commiserate and it's not even toxic or negative it's just critical of like our politicians and these laws and this government and this person or whatever it is and we're critical of that is anything ever good enough there's always room for improvement i i have room for improvement i'm not always right like i have an open mind and so i think instead of being kind of stuck in this path of like well it works for me it must work for everyone like always assume um and that's the important thing about 
uh, like inclusive feminism or just even being a part of society, like always look for the people that it's leaving out. Who isn't involved with this, included in this? And I think I wish more people would kind of focus on that a little bit. And I think in Norway, there's a, there's a very comfortable feeling of like, oh, you look like me and sound like me, so this will work. And there's a very uncomfortable, oh, you look different, you, you feel different or something like that. It seemed interesting to me to hear what Ellen thinks about feminism in Norway, about her gender studies, but also about feminism in everyday life. I think for me, yeah, my first introduction to like Scandic or Scandinavian or Nordic feminism was, it's just when it makes the news of Norway has paid paternity leave, you kind of ignorantly think problem solved. So I think it is this uplifting message of like, it can happen, it is possible. But I think coming to Norway, I really expected a lot of queerness. I expected a lot of radical notions of feminism, progressive feminism, and I expected like way inclusive, alternative people. Like I just expected there to be this like colorful experience of uh, of feminism and gender equality. And I really thought I was gonna like see it in the street. And now I just feel so silly, like, oh my gosh, what a what a stereotype to have. You know, Norwegian men would come up to me at the bar or the brewery and ask what I do or what I went to school for. And as soon as I would say gender studies, they would flip out. But you guys were raised with this gender equal society. Like, why do you hate women so much? But then it kind of kept happening. And then when I came here for school, I realized that like the curriculum was very outdated. Why is anyone reading feminism from like 1970s as though it still is true today? If it's a history class, great. Other people obviously shared that concern. I think I just started emailing around. Like I just Google search Facebook, like Googling around and emailing other departments. And I was told that the queer studies department was in Bergen. So I kind of emailed them and someone told me about this queer research group, basically just made up of academics in Norway. I know you have to be kind of, they're very protective because it is such a space that like someone can join and harass. So they, they are kind of like invite only or whatever, but it, it's just a really cool community that's very outspoken, and, at least in our meetings, and disappointed in the status quo that is kind of mainstream or structural feminism here in Norway. And that was really awesome to see that because when I would bring up that I wanted to include queer theory or queer studies in my thesis, my own professors at UEO were sitting there like, oh, there's no need for that. There's no need to do that. And I was just sitting there like, I came to Norway because I thought you were gonna encourage this in a way. I was getting very negative feedback for wanting to do a queer thesis and, um, not right in a Norwegian context. And so luckily this queer research group was like, do it, do it. And in the end I graduated, I graduated on time, but I kind of had to put my thesis on hold for a while. And um, I was very proud that I finished it on time. School here is technically free. I had to prove I had 15,000 knock in a, a 15,000 US in a bank account to be here. So it's not really free for me, but the tuition is like 800 kroner a semester. Wouldn't you want me to stay and pay back into the system that provides this education? That's what was so bizarre to me. And luckily I had been working in events and marketing. So I didn't even, I didn't get a job after um, graduating that was related to my studies. I got a job after graduating that was related to all of my previous years of experience back home and graduating with a master's. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, cause that's another stipulation. Like I could only get a work visa 
if I got a job in something related to my studies. Marketing happens to be something vaguely enough similar that I can kind of like, yeah, gender studies. I mean, really, a lot of this has just felt like a rock tumbling downhill that kind of sometimes lands for a while and then, uh oh, uh, it tumbles again. And um, so I have been, there's a lot of things that have felt very, very lucky in that. But I think I just witnessed um, the relationships that my Norwegian classmates had that just weren't being fostered for me. And I thought that was frustrating. And I mean, like, there were times like we were invited to an academic lunch, which normally I would think means that you get lunch. <laughs> and I go because there was free lunch offered and I'm a poor college student. And my advisor like came over to me and was like, no, the lunch is only for the professors. It was weird. They invited me after I graduated to come back and speak at an academic lunch. And I said, please don't ever <laughs> email me again. Like I graduated and that's that. And yeah, yeah. I mean, part of me hated even graduate. Like, part of me honestly wanted to do the feminist thing, which would be to like, I don't want your degree. I did it. I earned it. I passed my thesis. You can keep it. Because I was so just truly disappointed. disappointed and sad. And a lot of that came with feelings of like loneliness and worthlessness. Like, I moved halfway across the world to sling barbecue food. I think a lot of people were like, well, if you didn't want to serve barbecue food, you don't have to. And it's like, no, I, I literally am applying for work on my days off and I, this is what I'm here to do. And Did gender studies meet Ellen's expectations? I don't think so. But I think it's important to hear the reasons why. Why everything is more or less mainstream today. So being a rage feminist, someone can call it inappropriate. I, I don't want to fulfill the stereotype of the angry feminist, but also like, let's be angry. And I, often like when I meet a stranger or something like that, it's like, yeah, I'm a raging feminist. Or like, they'll because they'll question, what do you do with a gender studies degree? <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, uh, I'm a raging feminist and it's awesome. Like, that's what I do with my gender studies degree. And I think like, there's a way in which like, you live it too. You don't just study it. And like, I went to um, the anti-Steon protest. The Steon protest, those guys were the the white supremacists that ripped up the Koran in front of the parliament building um, on Carl Johans. So there was an anti-Steon protest, and so I was like, we have to go. It was before my shift at Way Down South, and I was like, we gotta go. They stand up there with their signs that are basically anti, the anti-Islamification of Norway. That actually might be what Steon stands for in Norwegian. Mm -hmm. So the anti-Islamification of Norway, so they're anti-Muslim immigrants, refugees, whatever this like thing was that they were trying to nitpick. The awesome thing about that day was how huge the anti-Steon protesters were. Like we were, you know, there are many numbers, many other signs, people playing music. It ended up turning pretty ugly. Like they were taking chairs from a restaurant and throwing them at cop cars. And like, to me, I've been to American protests, not that big of a deal, right? And it ended up dispersing. I don't remember what the, the Norwegian newspaper said about it the next day, but that's what I witnessed. And I, I saw people getting pepper sprayed by cops and I saw like um, a little bit of some violence and people kicking cop cars and things like that. But a lot of that to me seems cathartic and normal in a democracy that like the police are they should be protecting other people's freedom of speech, of course, but they kind of represent this thing, especially for these people of color who were sitting there in this protest and they were clearly frustrated. Their righteous anger is completely valid. Like, they are probably so fed up. And at least a couple of people that I talked to 
um, were sitting there and they were saying, we're pissed, like we're frustrated, we're, we're fed up. And um, I know I'm probably not talking about this all in the most um, correct way, but I think that was what I witnessed was like this divide of it's the same back home where there are certain groups of people that are very frustrated and left out. And then there's certain groups of people. And I, I think I'm in the, the weird middle where it's like, I can blend in as long as I don't talk. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's a privilege yeah. that I have every single day in Norway. And I think there's been this weird way where I sort of am suddenly realizing how much privilege I do have here and how hard that still has been. And I can only imagine, um, that's why I think earlier when I mentioned, it's, I don't really identify as an immigrant because like I have the choice to be here or not. And I, but my first two years, how hard they were, I felt like an immigrant every day. And I think that um, there needs to be a little bit more empathy in Norway towards people who can't go home and towards people who, if they could, they probably would choose to. But guess what? They're calling Norway home now. And like we need to have working environments and jobs and businesses and people and Norwegians who are willing to hire people without Norwegian names and without the same skin color, without the same religion. We all know how important cooperation and fellowship are. The exchange of ideas opens the door to new possibilities. Ellen has such experiences with professional women network. I recently was volunteering for the Professional Women's Network of Norway, and we did the big job club. And I was in charge of getting speakers and facilitators and kind of facilitating the whole thing. One of the biggest things was hearing from these women who had all kinds of backgrounds, Malaysia, Russia, Latvia, the US, Canada, Philippines, China. And there were a lot of differences, of course, in stories, but the biggest connector was just not getting a chance to get a real job. They don't reply to you. They, Your name is so different that you feel so othered. And many of these women have been here for years longer than me, and they're struggling to find meaningful work. And I think like at the end of the day, one of the best advice we offered them was just like, if you can get into one Norwegian company and get one Norwegian company or name or reference on your CV, you will, yeah, be helped in this arena. Stop hiring within your network or the people you went to high school with and just be aware of diversity and inclusion and look up the best practices for hiring and start understanding that like those differences are what make companies great. There's just a way that even if people learn Norwegian, it's still not quite good enough. What's discouraging to me is like I talk with women, American women who have been here 15 years and they speak fluent Norwegian and they have, you know, half Norwegian children and they're still in this weird, not quite belonging place. And to me, I'm like, is that going to be me in 15 years? Unfortunately, there is corruption and mobbing in every society. Listen to the unpleasant experiences Ellen had with the Shi community. Read the article on this topic, which can be found at the link to the episode. Um, I was basically poached from my job at Way Down South to go work for a quote-unquote feminist organization called Shi Community and um, not to be confused with she communa. And um, I was gonna write articles and edit and copy edit and things like that and find content basically for their, their new website they wanted to launch. So I was assuming that part of this like poaching process, I was gonna have a similar contract, which is what I was told I'd be working part-time. You know, kind of long story short, um, they basically offered me what they call a zero hour contract, or I guess what Norwegian lawyers call a zero hour contract. Your employer would never admit that, but they offered me 5%. I 
I negotiated up to 20. Um, so I signed this contract, I get started. Within like a month, the person who brought me in to the, the organization, uh, she quit and left and very suddenly, which was kind of red flag number one. We got a new um, editor and kind of going back to queerness in Norway, I mentioned I'm queer, I identify as queer, I've had queer relationships, like whatever it was to kind of like justify it because I could tell she kind of was skeptical. And then I was studying queer theory for my thesis and almost as soon as I was done with that sentence, I knew it was a mistake. Like the way she looked at me, I was like, oh no. Me and another colleague were, uh, we were both gender studies students at UEO at this point. When he explained what he was writing, she was all on board. And then I went last, I went second. A fire went through her eyes and I could just see like the body change that she was just angry about it. The, basically the next things out of her mouth were like, oh, she mentioned Judith Butler. Um, but I was sitting there like, that's kind of like very feminism 101. And she's like, oh, Judith Butler. I just don't know if I buy into that. Like she just started immediately like, dissing queer theory and and queerness and like oh this whole gendered thing nowadays it's such a fad and t saying something along the lines of like you know most women in norway don't like paternity leave because it's encroaching on women's spaces and women women want to stay home with children and now they don't really have that opportunity <laughs> with paternity leave i know and I sat there and I was like dumbfounded, absolutely astonished. I work for a feminist online magazine and that was the first like, oh, I'm into queer theory. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. Like she said several things in a row that I was like, <gasps> I remember having my laptop in front of me. And at this point I opened up my notes app and I started writing these sentences like, and keep in mind, you know, I've had kind of some bad experiences before in workplaces. When I had that experience, I had wished that I had kept more notes so that I could like recall for myself, like you're not going crazy. So at this point I started like recording things and kind of keeping notes, like as the meeting would happen and she would say something to me that was just totally either demeaning or weird or bullying, I would write it down or I would be recording, which was a terrible feeling of like, no, I'm in my thirties and there's queerness here and I'm a feminist and I should be able to admit that at this feminist magazine. Then it came out that she like wrote some Blue Stockings book or something. And I didn't really know what Blue Stockings feminism was in Norway. I still kind of don't, but it sounds like it's kind of comparative to like TERFs back in the US. TERF is like tra trans exclusionary radical feminist. It seemed like it was more related to that. Like it was for white straight women who just had this basic idea of feminism. And I'm sitting there like, it's so much more. It can be more, make it more. So that was basically like just the beginning of the, the end for me at She Community. Months later, as the abuse kind of got worse and worse, worse, more obvious, and you know, several calls with coworkers, like, am I going crazy? Am I being treated weird? And they, they affirmed it all. Um, I recorded my conversations with the CEO where I was letting her know that her friend was bullying me. She said she'd take care of it. And about a week later, um, kind of out of the blue, she called me um, to fire me for out of just nowhere. And again, I come from a right to work state. This isn't like unusual. I've never been fired from somewhere before, but um, I'm kind of used to the idea that like, yeah, you could show up to work one day and here's your box of stuff, goodbye. And so, all the Norwegians in my life, um, I mean, the, the two of them were basically like, you need to look for a lawyer, you need to do this. My coworkers were sitting there like, go to your union if you have one, go to your lawyer. And so also Kamina provided a free lawyer and very quickly after I sent him all the evidence I had, he gleefully was like, yeah, we got them. This is going to be so easy. 
Yeah, and he just, he said, as soon as you were done with this, Ellen, you need to join a union. So I did, and he was just very clear that, you know, you need to terminate a contract appropriately and they owe you this money. And so in the end, I won that lawsuit. The support of friends, colleagues, and our partners is very important. Our partner is going through the same frustrations as us. It is not easy and it is not for everyone. The fact is that it is easier to overcome difficulties and find the joy of living in Norway with a partner. But like I said, it's not easy and it's not for everyone. It's definitely been up and down. Lately, I definitely have felt more hopeful for Norway and for these, this working out for me. And I think part of that has been like acknowledging how hard those first several months were, you know, because I had a really unhealthy view on it like last year where I was like, it's me versus Norway. If I move home, Norway wins. And I kind of had to start going back to therapy again for to realize like, oh, it's not personal. It's not me versus Norway. Like, what do I want? But lately, I've definitely been more convinced of like, I can do this. I have a really exciting job I'm looking forward to in May. It's really gotten nothing but better since that first year. I think it was that first kind of tough. It felt like hazing or something. Last week while I was in Spain, Peter came out and joined me for the last weekend. And I was like, I actually am kind of homesick. I'm homesick for Oscar and I'm kind of homesick for walking around. And I found an acupuncturist out there. I found a therapist. Like I'm really trying to do the things <laughs> yeah. where I'm like, I can do this. And I very much love being with Peter. So I want to be here and make this work and develop those friendships. And I think what's been really cool about him or us is the conversation where I can outwardly say like, just you is not enough. Like I need friends. I need a career. I need hobbies. I need plans. Yeah. My boyfriend and I even like, we stayed up late last night talking about a lot of these things because he's really working on himself and his stuff and I'm working on myself and my stuff. And I think it's so interesting to be in an international couple or an intercultural couple. I mean, even last night to Peter, I was like, thank you so much for your <laughs> ability and willingness and all of those things to just speak English with me. Because if he didn't, like we would not have a relationship. And he's like, yeah, what would you do if, you came home one day and I said, no more English for the date. I'm like, no, that'd be terrible. And he admitted like, yeah, I have to translate a lot of, like when we have lighter conversations, it's easier to kind of like, bah, 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 bah. Uh, but when we have heavier conversations, it is harder. And I do need to be more patient and let him sort of go through Norwegian to English, heavier topics. And that's something I need to work on for sure. Yeah, cause you know, it's like, I had kind of very limited experience with it before, but he in so many ways like has just been so like generous and helpful and open-minded and supportive and wonderful and there's in a lot of ways i'm sitting here i'm finally in this position where i'm like you know i'm gonna cut out all these other distracting things in my life i'm gonna work and i want to take some norwegian classes like i'm finally almost three years in in a spot where i can do that but i think one thing that norwegians might need to be here like what a privilege it is to have the time and money to pay like thousands of kroner a week or month to study a new language. And I am sorry, but moving to Norway, I did not have that luxury. Ellen, I'm glad that you were with us today and that you gave us a critical and argumentative personal review of some important topics in Norwegian society. Also, it makes me proud that you chose and considered this podcast important to share your experiences with us. Thank you. You show me that you have trust 
in this little project I'm running and that, uh, that uh, I really appreciate all of you coming here and sharing your story, your experience. I like hearing direct from the people. I appreciate all the hard work that you've done and I think that's what's been fun about listening to past episodes is those moments where someone, Italian, Finnish, Austrian, like they're sharing these stories and I'm sitting there like, me too! And it just helps you feel so much less crazy and alone and it's yeah it's awesome yeah to know that yeah there's there's uh, and again for for other newcomers and for norwegians just to maybe being aware of how things are running for yeah for newcomers yeah. and maybe some things could be changed could be better yeah you listened to the second episode of the third season of the norwegian newcomers podcast my name is Valerian Atanovic. take care we are back next tuesday